Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage Podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast where we focus in on teamwork, leadership, and culture. I am Greg Gregory, your host for this afternoon's session, and we're going to be excited to talk today with a gentleman who is really focused in on performing cultures, and that's the power in a lot of what we talk about. We're weekly here. You can get ideas that can have a great, profound impact on your teams, both personally and professionally. Today, we're joined by Andrew Friedman, and he's a lifelong advocate for maximizing human potential and creating positive change both professionally as well as personally. For over 25 years, he's been a driving force in designing strategies that provide leaders a foundation to translate individual team, organizational talent into tangible business growth. And that's key. If we don't grow, we're starting to die. As a managing partner, and I want to make sure I get this said correctly, as a managing partner of Shift consulting. He's helped countless companies across diverse industries flourish through vibrant company cultures and high-performance mindset. Additionally, through his work as an affiliate faculty member at the University of Baltimore, Andrew's continued goal is to use the insatiable passion that he has for human performance to inspire new generations of business leaders with the art and science of creating and executing successful people-focused business strategies. And folks, regardless of what we do, everything we do, teamwork, we still are a people-driven force. He's also the author of the book, Thrive, The Leader's Guide to Building a High-Performance Culture. Andrew, welcome to the Teamwork Advantage. Greg, thank you very much. I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. And I'm excited about digging in with you and having a really productive dialogue that your listeners, I know, will get value from. Absolutely. And this is this is one of my passions right here is when we're going to talk about culture today. But before we get deep into culture a lot, um, you know, you're just up the road for me in, in the Baltimore area. What brought you here? What got you to this point in your life? How, how did you get here? Uh, looking back, it's pretty easy for me to see. Uh, if I look through the eyes of my 20-year-old self, I couldn't have seen that I would land here. Everything for me, Greg, has always been about helping people be more, do more, and give more. And everything that I've done, I've always prided myself on leaving people either more inspired, more equipped, more knowledgeable, having more access to something so that they could live more fully into their passion. And so I started actually in health and fitness doing that very literally through physical training, uh, personal training. And then mm -hmm. I wound up getting involved in consulting uh, because I was doing that in the health club industry. And once I got a taste in the consulting business, I absolutely fell in love with the scale and impact that I could have. And so I worked in small to mid-sized companies, and then I worked for Fortune 500 companies. And here I am today at Shift doing a blend of both, really bringing my, my purpose and my passion to life every single day. It's really key. I love something you said there. It's helping other people find their passion. And it's so fun because you have found your passion in what you do. 
So by helping others find it, that helps drive your passion even more, I would assume. It, it does. It actually drives my wife, Joanne, a little bit crazy from time to time because she'll say, you know, you, you're like nobody I've ever met. You literally wake up every day jumping up out of bed, excited for what you're going to bring the day, what the day is going to bring you and new opportunities to help people. And that is really true. I am so stinking excited about what I do every day and what might the impact be that I have that I really can't wait for the day to get started. And, you know, I go back to the old phrase Zig Ziglar used to use. Everybody calls it an alarm clock. And do you remember what Zig used to call it? An opportunity clock. Yeah, I love that. I love that phrase. So does that, does that drive your uh, wife a little crazy, the fact that you're always upbeat, positive, and ready to go? It, it's one of the things that she loves most about me, and it does fatigue her, truly. <laughs> it wears her out a little bit. She's like, can't you just modulate a little bit? Can't we just like chill out and relax? You have to be jumping up out of bed, you know, six o'clock every day, raring to go. How about just staying in bed a little longer? And, and I do that a little bit. I do. I do enjoy that. I do. I, I love, I love, you know, sleeping in every now and again with her, but uh, and, you know, at the same time, I'm just, yeah. I really am so excited about what I do every day. Well, it's so funny because you're, you're on the same page. I am. It was, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, my wife and I were at the grocery store and I was talking with the cashier and, my high energy self and just having fun. And she looks to my wife and says, is he always like this? My wife goes, pretty much. She goes, wow, that's so cool. My wife goes, not really. Yeah. Oh my God. I love it. I could, that resonates with me very much. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about culture. First of all, what got you into the thought about companies' culture? That's a key thing I want to find out here. What's your root cause for that? I, you know, for a year, so I, I have no formal degree in peopleology. That's not even a thing, I don't think. No, but, I love uh, that word. <laughs> yeah, I've always been fascinated with people and the study of people and trying to understand why some people, some teams and some organizations can consistently perform at high levels and why some always seem to struggle. And they're, it's like they're, they're pushing this massive boulder up a hill. And why is that? It's not because others are significantly smarter than them or have it's the experience or whatever. Mm -hmm. I've always wondered about that. And as, as I studied it more and more and more, what I learned was so much of why an individual team or organization can perform at high levels on a consistent basis really does relate back to the culture. That is the root where it all starts, the culture, the vision, the values of the organization. That's where so many companies just unintentionally miss the mark. That is one of the big keys. And so I, I, that's been a lifelong study for me now. It's fascinating because it, it kind of goes on so many different levels. I don't know that there's a specific definition of what a culture is that comes down the line. And we often talk about, as I have as well, and I won't say I'm guilty of, but I, I guess that's the right phrase. We always focus on high-performing teams. So when you think about the words high-performance culture, what does that or what doesn't that really mean? Yeah, I, I'm going to answer that in, uh, with two, two parts. First part is something that you just said. I hear a lot where leaders will say, you know, well, you know, we don't really have a culture here. Or, and it's like, well, first of all, you can't. I mean, that's just not true. Every company has a culture. Every team or subunit inside a business has a culture. The question really is, is it the culture you want? And loosely defined, I heard this said, I didn't invent this a long time ago, but I love it. Culture is the way that we do things around here. 
That is culture, the way that we do things around here, the way that we talk, we interact, we make decisions. And so when you think about what a culture is and isn't, you know, first is if we've got a vision, one that is clear, crisp, concise, not just on a website, not just on a Word document, but one that people really understand and embody. It's where we're going. It's the purpose of our organization. We've got a vision. We are clear on the organizational values, what we hold most dear, the way that we treat each other, the things that are most important to our organization, inclusive of and irrespective of performance. We got clear vision, we got clear values. If that's in place, then high performance exists when the teams and individuals in the organization consistently exceed the goals and strategies that the organization has, but it must be done in alignment with the vision and in alignment with the values. That's what high performance does mean. What it doesn't mean is, you know, succeed at any cost, treat each other like crap, you know, demean people, demoralize people, squash their dreams, be condescending, you know, uh, those, that is not a high performance culture, regardless of how much revenue or profit the company spins off, just isn't. Right. And then it's also got to be consistent, I would assume. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so let's, let's talk about it inside that culture. What happens when a person is not necessarily performing within that line of the culture that's been set forth? In other words, they're not following the mission, the visions, or they don't have their core values, or they're not set with that. What happens then? I mean, the train gets derailed a little bit, but can you, can you kind of talk to that a little? It can. It, it, the train definitely gets derailed a little bit. And, you know, one of the personal mantras that I've, you know, I've always lived by is assuming positive intent. So if we did our job during the recruiting and the interviewing and the hiring and the onboarding, and we made a good decision to bring Andrew into the organization, he didn't overnight turn into a jerk, right? He's, so if he's behaving badly or in a way that doesn't align with the culture and the values that we, that are you know, most important for us, we need to first understand why. So if you see somebody who's not operating in alignment with your desired culture, we have to first engage Andrew in a dialogue to just understand what's going on for him and assume positive intent. He's not trying to be a jerk. He's not trying to behave in direct opposition to the company's values. If for some reason during that discovery, what we uncover is Andrew's goals, his priorities, his value system has changed in a way that it no longer aligns with the, what the company holds most dear. We need to figure out a respectful way to exit Andrew from the organization so that he can go somewhere where what's important to him is also important to the company. If Excellent. And it's possible that something that might have derailed uh, him at that point could be uh, uh, a devastation, something like that happened in his life, anything else. And it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing that may have happened. Yes, absolutely. So when we talk about uh, this one particular person, we're using Andrew, but which we're using, obviously your name, I'm just getting messed up with that. Um, but uh, if we're talking about that, in your book, Thrive, I want to make sure I get this right, because I made a comment here. You talk about role excellence uh, process. I want to know a little bit more about what that means, because it's a, I understand that it helps leaders understand what culture looks like in key roles. But can you explain that process? I can. Yeah, many times... Uh, well, I'll, I'll back up one step. There are six major influences that really support and foster a high performance culture. One of the influences is expectations and feedback. Having really clear expectations and consistent feedback that's timely, reinforcing, and constructive. 
too often in organizations, we see that the expectations aren't clear or job descriptions are really, frankly, just a list of tasks. Um, I mean, and, some companies actually don't do job descriptions, probably. Right, right. And so you have leaders who say, well, everybody knows what's expected. And, you know, I know who my high performers are. And the reality is oftentimes neither of those things are true. People don't know what's expected and leaders are not clear. So this role excellence process starts with understanding what the organization values most. How do they define success at the macro level? Then understanding, Greg, which roles are most critical to powering that strategy. And oftentimes what we look for are roles that have a high number of people in them. Because in, in, that, in that kind of situation, you can operate at scale, you can have a lot of leverage, and there's also often a lot of variability in the performance. So once you understand the success of the organization, how they define it, and the roles that are most critical, then the role excellence process goes like this. You really start by defining the qualitative and quantitative metrics that that role is responsible for producing, qualitative and quantitative. So let's talk, let's talk briefly here about quantitative is very easy. Help us with the qualitative part. Yes. Qualitative, uh, it's different by role, but it will usually include things like relationships. What's the quality of the relationships inside the organization and also with customers? If you have a customer-facing role, qualitative could also be about how a person does their work. So are they displaying appropriate empathy in a way that advances their performance? Mm -hmm. Do they know how to collaborate effectively? So oftentimes leaders say, well, you can't measure that. You actually can. There are diagnostics yeah. there, you know, that are algorithm-based. You, you absolutely can measure where somebody is and their level of progress and their level of accomplishment on qualitative measures. So you got to understand both. And I know you know this, the days of you know, leaders saying, oh, those qualitative things, those are just the soft skills. They don't matter. Those soft skills actually are the things that are most important, especially when you talk about teamwork and leadership and culture, like they are critical. If you don't have that, you got nothing. You got nothing. Yeah. There've been a lot of studies that go into that in more detail that say uh, CEOs are most concerned about the health of the organization. And they're not talking about the financial stability or health. They're talking about the health of the people that are within that organization and how well they're communicating, how well they're getting along within those soft skills. And that, that's absolutely key. And a couple of my clients have always said, when business slows down, that's when they focus in on the softer skills for training and building those up. So that's, that's real powerful. It is. Okay, it so is. Let's, get, let's get back on. You talked about qualitative and quantitative. Once, we, once we're clear on qualitative and quantitative metrics of success, then it's about re then saying, okay, now who? Who in these roles are the ones who most consistently exceed those qualitative and quantitative metrics? Once we understand who those people are, then it's about studying them, not just asking them why they're so fabulous. Nobody can answer that question, really. You have to watch them while they do their work. So that's shot even in this, you know, in environments where, you know, people are working in a work from anywhere environment, they're using Zoom or they're in co-located in the same room. It doesn't matter. You know, you can study people and you can do what we call case-based analysis, which is if it's a sales role, as an example, I might say, Greg, tell me about this client that you just brought into the organization. How did you find the client? What did you do? How did you start the conversation? What was the need? How did you move through the sales process? What was the enrollment? Like what we want to understand here is that person's mental model. Okay. How do the work they do? That's where the richness is. And the same thing can apply in a uh, call center for customer service 
uh, help desk for information technology. All of those things can kind of fall right into that line. Yes. And uh, so that, that's key. So a lot of times when organizations, uh, they put on their recordings, of course, this call will be monitored for continuing development purposes. We get a lot of that. So that hopefully the leaders are actually doing that and using that quality development purpose. Yes, and, and that's what you know, I mentioned a bit ago, expectations and feedback. Once you create this, what we call the role excellence profile, which is derived from getting all of these insights from all of these excellent performers, the best of the best, and then you know, synthesizing that into a very clear and concise blueprint of what excellence looks like. Now you've got expectations that are clear. Now leaders can do a better job of providing useful feedback. What's not useful is, you know, uh, Andrew's not, a, you know, Andrew, you need to be a better team player. I, I, if somebody said that to me, I wouldn't even know what that means. That lacks- Nobody does. Yeah, that lack, lacks specificity. We need, hey, when you do these specific things on the phone, I can see that it really advances the connection with the client and it opens up opportunities for us to extend or expand their contract with us. That's great. Please keep doing that. That's useful. Likewise, the uh, inverse of that is when you're making a comment like that, you could be uh, hurting or harming a cat, uh, Sally on the other side of the team or something in that direction. But we got to be, again, specificity is key. Now, you did mention earlier, and you talked about expectations and feedback as one of the influences. Can you run off all six of those influences? I can. I can. And I'm going to do them in this way. There are three that are external to the individual and three that are internal to the individual. And that's an important distinction. The external ones, we talked about expectations and feedback. We're also talking about rewards and recognition and consequences. And then, so that's the second one. And then the, the third external one is environments, systems, and resources. Each of those three influences are external to the individual. These are things that leaders truly are responsible for. They, you know, oftentimes I'll say, these are things that, pe that the leaders do to individuals. So those are external. The internal ones, we're talking about capacity and job fit. We're talking about skills and knowledge. And we're talking about motivation and preferences. Those are all internal to the individual. That's what each human brings to the work. Now, interestingly, you might already get this because I, you know, I, I dig the way you think about culture. The three that are external to the individual are heavily weighted in terms of importance. 75% of an individual team or organization's ability to thrive, to really perform at high levels, is based upon those three external influences really critical. So the other part, of course, then would be the 25% of those other three. Yep. They're also important, but they're far outweighed what the organization does to the human. You know, and that's, that's so spot on because if you look at some of the top companies, look at Southwest Airlines, for example, you know, they're all about hiring. They hire for the, the, the they've got to have the certain level of skill. They know that. And they're looking at that knowledge. But then beyond that, they're hiring for the attitude. So they're hiring for everything that's above there. They're hiring in that 75% range. And I think that's so key when you see companies like Southwest Airlines, Marriott Hotels, all doing something of that nature. Absolutely. And when you think about the expectations that Southwest has for their greeters or the folks on the plane or the folks that are you know, actually working the counters in the, in the actual airports, because they're so clear on the expectations, they can really hone their interviewing skills to make sure that they are looking for proof, for evidence that people will be able to perform to those expectations. So their hiring success 
goes up. So if they've gotten through the expectation process and they know what the top performers are doing, am I right in thinking that that creates a baseline for them so that they, when they're going out to interview, they can then interview based upon what that baseline is to try and figure out where the person fits? Absolutely. And so we help our clients create inter actual interview scorecards that they can objectively assess people during the interview process against these key criteria. And that makes it so much better. We've seen tremendous impact for clients, like truly saving hundreds of thousands of dollars, at least on an annual basis, just by getting hiring right or more right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's the old adage, you know, let's, let's find time to do it right the first time. You know, it's, it's better sometimes to leave a position open than it is to do something that would mess up your process. Yeah. And there's actually a restaurant group um, that I know of that they were down a server one night and they couldn't get anybody in to fill in. Now, they had an incredible system in place, but they didn't want to mess their system up. So they actually closed four tables that night. They had a line out the door still, which they had every night. But they closed four tables and they wouldn't seat people at those tables because it would mess up their system and their whole service model would fall apart, which I thought that was so powerful to understand how they did that. Yeah, as opposed to sacrificing their brand, their customer experience, the impact they, you know, that's that's a compelling story. I love it. Yeah. Now, so let's talk a little bit about, and we've always heard, you know, the leaning and everything else, lean six and all these other phrases over the years you use a term called lean learning and performance yeah what is that well it starts with the role excellence profile once you've got clarity around what excellence looks like the only things that you want to train people on truly are the things that will allow them to create the most value in alignment with that new blueprint so we call it you know know do and produce so you want to train people only on things that are related to what they need to produce. You want to train people then only on the things they needed to do to produce those results, which means you only want to train people on the things they need to know in order to do the things they need to do to produce those results and value on the, on, you know, on the most consistent basis. So if somebody's interested in something else, of course, they can spend time learning on it. But we see in organizations you know, oftentimes a reduction in training spend in time taking people out of the field or out of their seats. We see that reduced by as much as 30% when they change their approach to really focusing only on what people need to know to do and produce things to create the most value in their role. It's pretty transformative. So how does that, I see some significant differences there with organizations that are really strong about cross-training professionals. Does this conflict with that or does this actually act as a supplement to it? it? It's a supplement because you would cross train somebody with specific intent. You're not going to cross train them just because you think it's a cool idea. You're going to cross train somebody because maybe they need to understand a different role and how those roles intersect and mm -hmm. how they actually impacts each other upstream and downstream. You might cross train people because, you know, there's a reality that they're going to need to fill those roles because, of downtime or people being out, or it might even be a career mobility play. And so it's always done with intention. So as long as there's specific intention behind it. Okay. Yes. 
See, that's where I was. I was thinking of, I wasn't sure how that was going to come about. Um, I'm trying to remember the author who wrote a book, and I can't remember the name of the book right now, but he often focused in on the unique ability of an individual. Mm-hmm. And he always talked about the power to focus on that unique ability. What does that person do better? In other words, if you're looking at yourself, what do I do better than anybody else? And he says, when you focus on that and let everything else go, your level of success will go up. And I thought that was rather fascinating. He says, don't focus on your weaknesses. He said, our problem is if we focus on weaknesses, we will have people that have strong weaknesses. Yeah, I get down with that. I do. I do. I thought that was just fascinating. Something I've tried to learn and learning, you know, again, for leaders, it's uh, sometimes it's about learning how to delegate. It's a very simple task, but some people do not do it very well. Very true. So, um, you talk a lot about mindset and resistance and resilience. I've made some notes here. So as they relate to fundamental elements of culture, can you talk more about those three things right there? How do they come into play? Yeah, well, the, the reality is for all of us, you know, we come in, we come in contact with resistance every day. And uh-huh. uh, the, way that, the way that I describe it in the book is, you know, our light self and our dark self. We both have, we all have both of those and we need to, understand, acknowledge, and accept that. Our dark self is when we have doubt or fear or struggle or anxiety or stress. And that makes us worry. That makes us think about things like, why wasn't I invited in that meeting? Can I really perform this job to standard? Does my boss like me? You know, why did that client respond the way that they did? Am I in jeopardy of losing that client, maybe losing my territory or getting in trouble at work? There's all kinds of things that go on in people's heads. The light side is about operating in faith. And I don't mean religious faith. I mean, faith that I've got this faith that it will work out faith that it will, I will persevere. It's about understanding the, you know, the optimism, the hope, the light uh, that is possible. It's, you know, it's about powering through, through purpose. And so the first thing is understanding that we have these two sides to ourselves, light and dark, and that our mindset is probably one of the most important, um, you know, attributes that we have or levers that we have that we should be leveraging, meaning, The difference between why some people thrive in their roles and why others don't oftentimes comes down to their perspective, their mindset. What are they thinking about? Are they focused on the obstacles, the barriers, what won't work, what they don't have, what they lack, what is scarce? Or do they have a growth or abundance mindset that there's plenty of knowledge, plenty of opportunity, plenty of time? You know, I've got plenty of intellect. I've got plenty of, you know, of experience. And, you know, an easy way to play this through is just thinking about New Year's resolutions. You know, people will oftentimes, the most popular resolution has something to do with weight, right? So I want to lose weight coming into the year. And oftentimes people have tried and failed at losing weight before. And so they're already coming into it, many people, you know, having failed already because they've failed before and they're pretty sure they're going to fail again, but they give it another try. And six weeks into the year, 80% of people have already quit at their New Year's resolutions. The ones who succeed, Greg, are the ones who they get really rooted to. Why? Why is this resolution important? Why do I need to lose weight? Why do I need to thrive in this role? Why do I need to have a successful marriage? Why do I want to be a great parent? Why do I want to be a great spouse? Like really getting to why, Mm -hmm. getting it on right is so critical. That helps you power through when those moments of resistance happen. So that's the- And they also get to the point that you sometimes instead of focusing on the weight they can lose or they need to lose, instead of focusing on the negative, what I have found is people that focus on, 
uh, instead of I need to lose 20 pounds, they say I, I need to get my weight to X. And that's not losing because the word losing becomes more negative and that's a subconscious that goes through the brain. Absolutely. So we, we've got to focus on that. It's going through some uh, physical therapy myself over the last several months. It's one of those things that there's certain pain, the pain, your brain tells you that the pain is there and you should stop doing it. But we got to have our brain tell our body that, that, hey, that's good pain and we need that. And by doing that, you can overcome a lot of those obstacles. Yes. So that, that, that's really key. Tell us yeah. a little bit about your book, Thrive. So Thrive, Thrive is a compilation of the past, for me, over 20 years of my life's work. And my co-author, Paul, is a very good friend and colleague. He's been, he's been certainly at this work around human performance architecture and solutions for over 40 years. So when we got together, you know, we were just talking one day and we said, you know, there's so many good books out there around leadership and culture and performance, but they're all missing something, which is, you know, they're, they're not necessarily, they're more academic than not. So they're not sharing time-tested, battle-tested frameworks, approaches, you know, in a specific way that people can read the book and then go do something. People are left with a gap. So what, what I said, you know, with Paul is let's create a book that documents the amazing work that we've done over the last 20 plus years with very specific examples, case stories, uh, research backed, along with assets that people can absolutely use the minute they read the book. So we created a website. It's got like 20 or 22, what we call accelerators. And these are tools and templates that people can download if they want to create a better vision, if they want to help their managers have better one-on-ones, if they want to interview better, if they want to create role excellence profiles. We have compiled this book in a way where people will be able to read it, understand it, internalize it, and then use it immediately. That's what Thrive is. So leaders can truly, when they read this book, go, I know how to make progress towards building a more high-performance culture. Okay. And I'm assuming Thrive is available on Amazon or where everybody picks up their books? It is. Absolutely. Awesome. Now, I want to back up just a little bit here because I want to make sure we got the Thrive part in there for that. But I'm going to go back and dive a little bit deeper into that. Uh, I think you used the term um, light and dark cells. Yes. We've got that in our business. I'm assuming we also have a light and a dark self in our personal lives. Without question. Is it possible that there's an incongruency there that you may be in a light self within your personal life or dark and then dark in your business or vice versa? Is it, do those need to line up or does one impact the other? Or what do you, what do you think comes through there? They, they absolutely impact each other. Like, I mean, just using two examples, I don't know how it would be possible that a person could feel not worthy in the work that they're doing, not fulfilled in the work that they're doing, not that they're not achieving, they're not accomplishing, they're not, they're not living into something that gives them purpose. I don't know how that couldn't spill over at home. I don't. I just okay. have not seen it to be true. When people don't feel amazing about themselves in one way, it manifests itself in others. And it's the same thing conversely. If I'm having... If I'm having stress with Joanne at home, as good as I am at com compartmentalizing things, it definitely has a little bit of a spillover. I'm a little distracted. I'm a little in my head at work if things aren't, you know, really on fire in a good way at home. And so, you know, the days of people thinking it's like, well, you know, you got your work self and you got your home self. I, those I personally, I don't I don't subscribe to that. You know, the research doesn't support it. We are one. 
And more than ever now, because of how connected we are with technology, we've got to find Adam Grant. I, I you know, was uh, in a conversation with him. He did a nice fireside chat with a, with a group that I attended a little while ago. And he was talking about work-life rhythm. And you know that, that we really need to find that rhythm of how work and, and our home life can coexist more productively. And I really liked that. Um, it speaks to what some people are trying to, they're trying to integrate, they're trying to balance. And it's really about finding rhythm for both so we can be in better sync. I absolutely love the term work-life rhythm. Yeah. It's so powerful when you come into that. So if someone is feeling high anxiety and high levels of stress because of things that are going on in his or her personal life, that will spill over into what's going on and how they produce at work. No doubt. So what's a way that someone could take that? I mean, maybe I'm getting beyond your area of, of expertise here. Is there a way somebody can try and, uh, and again, I hate the word compartmentalize because that's what we do, but we can't do that. That's too difficult. But if someone's feeling that way and it's impacting their work and you're the leader, what can you as a leader do to help that person or what can the person do themselves? Well, the, um, there's a few things. One, for the individual, it's about self-awareness. And it's, you know, it's not about um, hiding or feeling shame or blame if things are a little out of kilter because we're all human. We all have those moments. And so it's acknowledging it, understanding it, and making sure that the individual has people in his or her life they can actually talk to. It could be friends, confidants, therapists. Um, all of those you know, different kinds of people are useful. The boss, you know, the, you know, if you will, at work also plays an important role. Sometimes leaders say, so Andrew, are you telling me like, you know, do I need to add psychologists or psychiatrists to my role description? And the reality is a little bit, Yeah. really having productive one-on-ones with your people, you know what's important to them. You know what's going on in their life to a degree. You don't need to know everything, but you do need to know some things about what's happening for people so that if they're experiencing some things that are getting them a lot of, a little bit out of kilter. You can give them space to vent. You don't need to solve everything for them. You don't need to be a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist, but they need to know that you care, that you have their backs and that they're heard. That will allow them to be more focused and more productive at work. It just will. It goes back to the old expression. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Amen. And once we, once we start to do that, and that's, that's the powerful part. Some folks just aren't getting uh, the days of the Flintstones of blowing the whistle at five o'clock and changing your whole life is totally gone. There, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah. In closing here, what would you say are some of the best things that people can do for themselves to make sure they're fitting into a culture? Or what if an employee doesn't necessarily feel that he or she fits into that culture what should they be doing? Is there something that you do within the culture or should they just say, I'm done? Well, I, you know, I, it starts thinking about the individual first. It starts with people getting really clear on what's most important to them, like having a personal vision and personal values, really clear on what's most critical. Now, if I'm looking for a new job, I can use that then as a way to test for resonance with the company that I'm interviewing for, making sure that they value similar things to what I do. If I'm an incumbent in the job and I'm just feeling like we're not in sync, right? My, I might not be a culture fit, as you said, or maybe I'm not a culture ad. I'm not adding to the culture in a productive way or the company's not adding to my values in a productive way. 
then then it, it does warrant a conversation with the person's uh, you know immediate supervisor I, I believe to say I'm feeling a little out of sync I'm feeling a little out of sorts if you've got the right kind of relationship between individual and manager those are transparent open and honest conversations without judgment and without fear of retribution that's important and that goes back to Jim Collins book good to great years ago he's talking about get the right people on the bus and get them in the right seats yes because they may be a good fit for the organization, but they may be in the wrong department or position or whatever, even within a smaller team. Yeah. And when we start to do that, and that happens because we have that knowledge of people. We Absolutely. learn about people. In today's society where we're still working in a quasi-pandemic mindset, uh, people are still working remotely. And quite frankly, I think people are going to work remotely for a long time to come. When people are doing that type of thing, how, what, what's your advice to organizations to make sure that culture is still thriving? Well, the, it's, it's not going to sound too much different than when people are co-located. It starts with clear vision, starts with alignment around what's most important in the organization, strategies, goals, priorities, clarity around, and reinforcement around the values, clarity around role excellence. So we're clear on all those things. And managers with their teams have developed ways, routines, rituals, rhythms to stay connected, one-on-ones, team meetings, some social events, you know, through distance technology or not, like really get creative around what do we mean when we say connectedness? As long as they have that, there's ways to execute all of that from a distance. We've been doing that with our clients. You know, heck, we've been around for 20 years. We've been doing that for a quite long time. Mm-hmm. And that's accelerated, as you said, through the, through the pandemic. Um, we see that managers and leaders who have that kind of mindset and approach, their teams are actually reporting higher engagement scores, more connected to their colleagues and their bosses, and they're actually been more productive. Are you noticing more burnout or not? Yes. In team, in organizations and teams where this high performance mindset and approach doesn't exist, yes, because what, you know, leaders, because they can't see you in your office, they don't really know they haven't defined what high performance looks like. And so they're, they're scheduling more meetings. They're asking for more reports. They're judging a person's worth by how many Zoom meetings they attend or how fast they're responding to emails. And so what's winding up happening is when people wake up, they got their phones right by their bedside. They're checking their phone early. They're online at like six or seven o'clock in the morning. And then they're on Zoom meetings or Teams meetings all day. They're not taking breaks. There's no commute time. They're not traveling to meetings. They're just jamming from one meeting to the next to the next. And the research that we've done and we've read is reporting that in, in cultures that are not high performance, their people are actually working on average four more hours a day. That absolutely is going to lead to burnout. Plus, when you're on Zoom all day, the level of intensity by staring at the screen and other people's faces is just, it's like nothing that exists when you're in person. It's exhausting. Right. Bottom line is when we're staring at a screen all day, our blink rate goes down. When the blink rate goes down, our eyes dry up. When our eyes dry up, we squint, we stare, and we get more tired. When we get more tired, we tend to make more mistakes. Because we're making more mistakes, we don't want to make the mistakes. We're working longer, we're working harder. It's a big snowball effect that starts to come into play. Yes, I love the way you said that. I totally agree. And it's just so, so powerful. Uh, it's notice you talked about the phrase, you know, the, uh, even personal as well as business missions and visions and everything. And that goes back to a book. I think it was out in 19, 
80 or 81, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So powerful. I had the privilege to meet Dr. Stephen Covey several times. And that personal vision and mission is right there. And getting your own personal core values sets you in place so that you can thrive within that organization. So what's the one thing you want? If somebody picks up Thrive and they read the book, what's the one thing you want them to take away? One thing I want leaders to take away is that it's possible. I want okay. them to take away that, you know, it's all within their control, that they can rethink, they can reshape, they can unlearn what they've learned, they can actually achieve what they might currently believe is not possible, that it is, in fact, possible. That, that's, that's so key. You know, we've been on here for a while. We can, I could talk about this for hours, as I'm sure you could as well. Uh, how do people reach you? Uh, uh, from a social standpoint, you know, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, my handle on all those channels, Clubhouse is all the same. It's at a Friedman Thrive. So they can find me on any of those social channels. Um, they can also directly reach out through the website we've created for the book, which is thrive.shiftthework.com. Those are the easiest ways. Thrive.shiftthework.com. That's the one. Okay. I want to make sure we got shiftthework.com. Get all that out there. As I know how difficult that can be. And of course, we're going to put that on uh, the podcast link so people can see you know, your contact information that way as well. Uh, in closing, do you have any thoughts that you want to share with anybody uh, that we haven't touched on so far? Uh, yeah, I said this in the, in the book. What I appreciate for folks who are listening to this what I believe about them, even though I may not know them yet, is that they care a heck of a lot about this because they, they've you know downloaded your episodes, they subscribe to your podcast, they care a lot about teamwork, they care a lot about leadership, they care a lot of, you know, um, about really making sure that they're building high performance cultures. They care about the TLC components. And so I just want to express some gratitude and appreciation for people giving enough, uh, darn enough about this stuff to listen to these episodes and then to actually go do stuff. It's not easy but it is doable. So for everybody listening who's downloaded this, thank you for your commitment to high performance and to building winning cultures. And uh, keep listening to the podcast because Greg's putting down some great stuff. And it sounds like you come from a place that I do called an uh, attitude of gratitude. Amen. Absolutely. Andrew, it is an absolute pleasure to have you join us here on the Teamwork Advantage. You know, every week on the Teamwork Advantage, we offer you impactful ideas that you can use immediately. And Andrew has definitely delivered on that today. Until next week, remember, having a good day is just being average. By listening to the Teamwork Advantage, you know you're not average. So make today an excellent and exceptional day. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.